Welcome spooks and spirits, ghouls and ghosts. Take a seat around the campfire. But beware, this podcast is haunted. Yeah, so... Yeah, I notice that you have your daily addiction with you. Yeah, when you tell me to be somewhere before noon, you have to. You have must to. expect me to come with coffee. Sure, well, especially because there's no coffee to be found in this house. Yeah, I, I, I learned long ago that I had to pack in, pack out when it comes to coffee. <laughs> Leave no trace. I uh, I can't believe you drink that stuff. It's I, so gross, and I don't know why anybody drinks it. I, I learned in college to love it, mostly because I started with the, like, really, really frilly stuff, and then I got poor. Sure. Expensive coffee is expensive, and then I was working in IT, and they had, like, the office coffee that they just asked a quarter for, and sure. I was like, sold. That is a good price. <laughs> that is coffee I can And I afford. was working there at 8 a.m., like, every morning my senior year, and I was like, I, I need something to help me like, wake this up. this has to happen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, learned to love it. See, while I appreciate what you're saying about the go-go juice, mm-hmm. uh, there is other better forms of caffeine that don't taste like garbage. Untrue. I do. I feel nothing from tea caffeine. Well, yeah, nothing. nobody feels anything from tea caffeine. Caffeine like, pills are. Ugh, why would you disgusting. take a caffeine pill? Talk to the tech nerds. I don't know, man. Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, I've, my tech nerds—they uh, do chew caffeinated gum at my work. See? Yeah. See? That's disgusting. <laughs> but it does clear your sinuses. Gross. I do kind of like that. At what fucking cost? Well, that's a good point. So, like, this Vicks is the thing I don't understand. Is a thing. Like, why? Everybody in the world who drinks something that they have to be like, oh, it's an acquired taste. Fuck you. It just tastes bad. <laughs> like, I don't understand. <sighs> but, like, your your tastes do change over time. Do they change that much? Give me a coffee. Give okay. Coffee. Okay. We're going to do... This is for science, everyone. This is happening live. Hello. Welcome to our podcast where we talk... <laughs> About ghosts, but we're doing a coffee taste test. All right, what's in this? Okay. So what am I drinking? You are drinking um, coffee that has been prepared with an AeroPress, which makes it smoother. Oh my God, you're so. It's basically an Americano because you make a small amount of really um, intense coffee, and then you fill the rest of the cup with water. And so it's watered down espresso, essentially. Okay. So this is going to be disgusting. And then I put a fuck ton of sugary creamer in there. Yeah, this is about the color of how I like my tea. Yeah. Milky. Um, all right. All right. It does not smell good. It okay. smells like dirt. I don't know why people drink this. I don't understand, guys. All please, right. I'm going to try please. it. Please. No. <laughs> why? <laughs> it tastes like grass clippings. <laughs> it's it's only the finest bean juice. No, thank you. What are you doing over there? Uh, welcome, everyone, <laughs> again, to oh, our God. paranormal podcast. <laughs> right. Um, that flavor's still in my mouth. I'm sorry. But, hey, you know what? The bubbly water should help that with that because that's what, how they do it in Europe. They just give you a little shot of bubble water. How'd you learn that? <laughs> in my semester abroad. <laughs> God, you fucking tool. I am. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, well... This is about all the levity we're going to have in this show. No, actually. don't say that. I know. Uh, I picked another bummer subject. We need to, we need to have a talk uh, <laughs> about, about your subject. How I just keep leaning into the saddest possible shit. Yes. <laughs> well, we need to talk. <laughs> I, do we need to talk or do I need to find a therapist? Yes.
Is that what we need to talk about? You need to talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm Jen. That's Kate, in case you're wondering. Oh, yeah. Gendering. Oh, shout out to all the new friends I made in Lansing. I started a new consulting gig over there. And as is my habit now, it immediately came out that I have a podcast. <laughs> and they're all, like, super excited about it. And so if you're listening, hi, Megan. Ed and Meg. <laughs> And, and Megan's mom. That's right. I work with a Meg and a Megan. Adorable. Adorable. Yeah. So we are talking about the, the Civil, Civil War. War. The and American you, Civil War. The American Civil War. And you are very appropriately wearing your uh, Rebel Grays. As are you. And I'm wearing my Union Blue. Creepy. I don't want to be a rebel. Yeah, I don't support the Confederacy. This is going to be a bad one. But <laughs> so uh, we are talking about the Civil War in America, and I'm I'm guessing a lot of Americans know a lot about it. But for our international listeners, we are going to give you a brief primer on some yeah things. Well, you know, as much as a lot of Americans know a lot about the Civil War, uh, a lot of the detail is actually lost um, mm-hmm. to to people who who don't take it. You know, something... There's a particular subset of Americans... Oh, yeah. ...who take the Civil War more personally than Uh maybe the rest of us. Um, So there are are people in America who know a great deal about the Civil War. Yes. And some of them might listen to this podcast, and we might hear hear from them. There's a lot of opinions. Um, But we're also not going to... Well, I'm not... uh, I'm actually not talking about people who have opinions about the Civil War. I'm talking about people who are, like, reenactors. Oh. mm -hmm. Who, like, know everything about everything about everything. Yeah. And they're going to be like, you got this detail wrong. Listen, we're not doing an exhaustive history of the Civil War. If you want that, go talk to Ken Burns. Exactly. There's a very good documentary that's 10 hours long. Actually, when you're done talking to Ken Burns, bring him to me. Homeboy could get it. (laughs) That voice? That haircut? Oh. <laughs> He'll be behind me. It doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, All do right. you want to kick us off? Yeah. Enough uh, so dilly-dallying. I have a couple things to, to talk about, and um, they actually come from my favorite source about the Civil War. I used it a Ken lot. When I, <laughs> I don't have that kind of time, honey. <laughs> I've... Have you seen all of it? Yes. Okay. But like At least over once. the course of many months. Yeah, it's it's a process. There are people who can sit down and like marathon a Ken Burns marathon, like marathon. Yeah. Ken Burns uh, series. Yes. Docu series. <laughs> yes. I'm not one of those. people. Soundtrack is baller though. Dope. Very true. Mm-hmm. Find me a bad soundtrack though. Oh, I could. Hmm. I that's my favorite genre of music. Yeah. Not all of them are created equal. Let's focus. Um, so I just want to start off with some Civil War facts. As I started to say before, um, uh-huh. before your sources before we got onto that. Uh, oh, my God. my favorite sources uh, for short form, highly informative articles about the Civil War is the American Battlefield Trust. Oh, so the American Battlefield Trust endeavors to preserve. The lands yeah. on which Civil War battles were fought. And uh, they've been able to do quite a lot of good and lots of great interpretation. So I've just got some things that I'm going to take you through briefly, uh, courtesy all of this information. All of it, 100%, comes from American Battlefield Trust. Mm-hmm. Their website is dope as hell. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of graphs. Yeah, don't you fucking love a graph? I love a good graph. Uh, all right, so 
Uh, basics about the Civil War. Now, for international listeners, mm-hmm. we're going to keep calling this the Civil War. We do mean the American Put Civil War. American Civil War. Mm-hmm. We're just being lazy and... Uh, we're not talking about Oliver Cromwell. That's a different episode. <laughs> well, how Western of us to think that's the only other Civil War. <laughs> well, that was just the first one that came to mind because, because I of... am an Anglophile and yes. that's just something you have to know about and me. this is I'm episode sorry. 70 of the show. You yeah. guys should know by now. So, when was the Civil War fought? Uh, it's Across started, Five Aprils. Sorry, there's a book. Good. It's called Across Five Aprils. And that's how I know that it started and ended in April. <laughs> you are correct. I'm actually really proud of you. Yeah. Uh, so April 12th, uh-huh. 1861, the first aggression of the Civil War. So that was the firing of Fort Sumter, April 1861. And then it ended April 1865. Mm-hmm. So that's the time period that we're talking about. Yeah. Basically, the southern states decided they didn't want to be a part of the Union anymore. Right. And they attacked a fort called Fort Sumter. Fort Sumter? We're going to come back to Fort Sumter. Okay. Briefly. Uh, So there are a lot of different things that caused the Civil War. And uh, people who are not us, people who are different from the way you and I look at the world politically, will say that... uh, what was the cause of the Civil War? The, it was the War of Northern Aggression. That's right. And what was the Civil War fought over? It wasn't fought over slavery. It was fought over... States' rights. States' rights to do what exactly? Own people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you'll hear about as you discuss the Civil War with people who are different mm. than Jen and I, they believe that it's more about states' rights than slavery, but ultimately it was about the states' rights... Actually, to be fair. Yeah. I was going to say, because I can come in with something. Yeah. So, (laughs) go ahead. States' rights to own slaves and Mm -hmm. also... Oh, I don't know what is exactly in your mind, but go. Seed from the Union. Yeah. So, so the idea was that uh, it was not a treasonous act to separate yourself from a Union. Yeah. Where, and and no war should be fought over that, that, that the part of the United States was to be... We choose to be in it or we choose to be out of it. Yeah, which is something that goes back to the American Revolution. So After they won it, there was a difficult decision as to whether these are separate sovereign states, kind of like the European Union, right. or whether it's one country. And we never really fully figured that out because the South always wanted to be separate entities and the North didn't. Uh, and that has to do a lot with like different economic systems. Absolutely. The North was more industrial. The South was agricultural. Which we're going to talk about a lot here. Yeah. And so the mo- the slightly more complex explanation for the start of the Civil War was that the South was rich because of slavery. And they were so agriculturally successful because of slavery. But uh, the North was fucking them over. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. Because the North wanted the South to buy goods made in the north and the south was wanted to buy goods from england and wanted to sell to england and so uh the north and the the new western states were genuinely ganging up on the south but also the south was owning people and they knew it was wrong and the north knew it was wrong and that it was an, another issue that's left over from the american revolution and this is where it kind of came to a head yeah uh, isn't it interesting that a lot of the issues we have today in 2020 mm-hmm. are the same issues that started before 1776? Yeah, it's kind of like... Frustrating. It's, we've been trying to hold together a coalition of very different cultures for our entire existence. And 
Maybe we should be different countries. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, I hope we don't find out in our fucking lifetime. Yeah, it's not know. a Kate Reed problem. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what caused the Civil War? Well, either states' rights or slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pulitzer Prize winning author James McPherson says, quote, the Civil War started because of uncompromising differences between free and slave states mm-hmm. over the power of the national government to prohibit slavery in the territories that had not yet become states. Right. Territory issues a big hue. Uh, continuing the quote. When Abraham Lincoln was won the election in 1860 as the first Republican president, he won on a platform t- pledging to keep slavery out of the territories. Immediately, seven slave states in the Deep South ceded and formed a new nation, the Confederate mm-hmm. States of America. The incoming Lincoln administration... And most northern people refuse to recognize the legitimacy of that succession. So again, the 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 other thing is, does the state have the right to leave? Mm-hmm. They feared that it would discredit democracy and create a fatal precedent that would eventually fragment the no longer United States into several small squabbling countries. Yeah. So, yeah, the Union didn't have uh, very much uh, economic interest in keeping the Union together because if suddenly everyone decides they want to quit, then you have... Something more like the Articles of Confederation era where every state has a different form of currency and there's no trade agreements and it is a big fucking shit show. Big fucking shit show. the reason why the South was so mad about all the new Western states being formed is because there was a very delicate balance of power between slave states and free states. And so uh, Lincoln being like, well, I'm just going to make this new state a free state really messed with the balance in Congress right. over, like, who's voting for what laws and tariffs and stuff. Who gets and, representation? What yeah. kind of representation do they get? Yeah. Uh, in the United States, uh, you get Congress people based on how many people are present in your area. Mm-hmm. So um, Michigan, we have, what, six districts? Eight? I don't even fucking know. Okay. I live <laughs> in Michigan, too. I think you're in Michigan 1. Three, you're in three, you're in a mosh. Sure. Um, but yeah, so we we have a number of different uh districts that are represented at the congressional level. At the Senate level, though, every state gets two. Yeah. So civics. Civics. <laughs> and that was like a, a compromise that does reflect our history with slave state states because exactly. they southern states were like, hey, we have a lot of people, but we don't count them, and so we want to have just as much power as you northern states who do count everyone, or at least, no, not that they counted everyone, but that they have more white people right. up north. <laughs> well, and we're going to talk about that, too, as we get in. I'm going to talk in more detail on the trigger events of the yeah. Civil War. So um, <sighs> We just have a lot to say. There's so much to say about the Civil War, and we're going to cut through as fast as possible. Yeah. Without being obnoxious about it. Yeah. This is a paranormal podcast, not just a civics lesson. <laughs> right. We'll um, get to the ghosts, I promise. That being said, I printed out easily 18 pages of information about the Civil War. And, and you numbered them. I did. I went, well, I numbered, you numbered the, the points. The order that I wanted to go in. That's amazing. Thanks. Okay. I was organized. Yeah. So we mentioned secession. Secession is when a state leaves the union, when they decide to join the Confederacy or, or whatever it is that they're joining. Because yeah, um, it's only happened once. So. Right. <laughs> and it fucking better only happen once. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, South Carolina left that first December, one month after the polls closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was pretty clear at that point in time that Lincoln was going to become the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case you don't know, in the United States, we have elections in November, but we don't... Uh, 
pledge people in. What is this? <laughs> so in the United States, we have the elections in November. We do the inaugurations in January because that's how long it used to take to count all the votes and like actually be sure who the winner was. Uh, so South Carolina saw the writing on the wall. They seceded first, December 20th of 1860, uh, followed in pretty short order. Uh, January, we had Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, mm-hmm. and Louisiana go next. In February, there was Texas. April was Virginia. May in Arkansas. Arkansas in May, rather. <laughs> uh, North Carolina also in May, and June of that following year uh, was the final state, Tennessee. So those are the states that bring up that that main that are the South. Mm-hmm. A lot of the New territories, like, say, Missouri, Mm -hmm. uh, were contested. Missouri was roughly 50% slave sympathizers, 50% Union sympathizers. Uh, I should say 50% Confederate sympathizers, 50% Union sympathizers. Sure. Uh, So they leave. They say we're starting a new country, and they elect Jefferson Davis as their president. So um, then battle had to happen. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the first battle is the... Firing on Fort Sumter, which Mm -hmm. we've already touched on. Uh, But there were thousands of different battlefields. This trust, the American Battlefield Trust, has their work cut out for them. (laughs) Because Mm. there are Civil War battlefields that stretch uh, Pennsylvania to Texas, New Mexico to Florida. Jesus. Uh, The majority of the fighting, though, did take place in Virginia and Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So if you were talking about going to a Civil War battlefield, that's where you're going to find... You want to get the most bang for your buck. (laughs) You know I like to bang for bucks. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so the bloodiest battle of the civil war was far and away gettysburg mm-hmm. which will we it needs its own episode we're, we're yeah. not doing Gettysburg. <laughs> we're not even going to touch on it guys i will say uh well we'll touch we'll touch back on one fact from gettysburg okay. later. uh but so at gettysburg over fifty-one thousand men died jesus christ yeah uh at chickamauga they had thirty-four thousand, and it goes you know there's this is a top 10 uh, number 10 of the top 10 is Vicksburg at 19,000. These were incredibly bloody. Yeah, and I mean, as far as American wars go, it is one of the, like, percentage-wise, one of the bloodiest wars in our oh, su- in our history. I'm super glad you brought that up. Oh, uh, do you have data on I that? have data. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I have data. So, uh, there was a study done in 1889 by William F. Fox and Thomas Leonard Livermore. They were both Union soldiers. And they did a study, uh, like I said, in 1889, that tried to come up with how many soldiers died during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. The number that they come, came up with was 620,000 soldiers, which yeah, is a lot. That is a lot. Remember, the entire United States was compromised, uh, was comprised, rather. Compromised. Yeah. We were. Uh, <laughs> in many ways. Uh, it was comprised of just about 22 million people at that uh, point in time. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's not a time. So the Union soldiers lost over two million. Uh, the Confederate side wait, wait, lost wait, two million, huh? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but it's not very. Do tiny you need type. your readers? Shut up! <laughs> if you say that again, I'm gonna beat your ass. <laughs> Listen, I'll kill you. Hey, I have readers. <laughs> I believe that you do. So, uh, the Civil War. Uh, a, a more recent study put that put the estimate of the dead as high as eight hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Uh, but 650 is probably the most widely recognized casual number. Okay. Now, talking about American soldier deaths, let's compare that to how we've stacked up in other wars. Please, yeah. Now, obviously, when we're here, fighting against ourselves. Yeah, all the casualties are technically counted as American because it's... 
Thank you for saying the word casualty. Oh. Um, a little point. Okay. Uh, a casualty is not a fatality. Ah. So there have been men in the Civil War who were casualted many times. Okay. A fatality is what we're counting here. They don't say wounded? Uh, no. <laughs> the, okay. it's, a, it's an obscurity of language and people use them interchangeably, but they shouldn't. I don't like that. I know. I'm sorry. So a casualty is any battle, um, any anything that can happen to a soldier that makes him ineligible for the next battle. Gotcha. It takes him out. Okay, so it's not like a paper cut. Right. Okay. Exactly. So like, so long as he can't go into battle again, like uh-huh. the next battle, he has to sit that one out. Yeah. He's a casualty of war. Okay. Okay. A fatality is what we're counting here. Gotcha. We'll probably slip up and continue to use them interchangeably, uh, but that's technically wrong. So okay. <laughs> Fine. So in the Civil War, we have that 600,000 men gone. Uh, World War II, American soldiers who died were only 400,000. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's like half of that. Oh, uh, slightly more, but yeah. Oh, well, I guess depending on what number. That's true. <laughs> uh, Contested. Uh, in World War One, however, we only lost 100,000 men. That's because we came in right at the end. Yeah. And I mean, saved them all. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> oh, fuck. We can't say that about World War II, because that was definitely just the Soviet pile of bodies that won that war. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, anyways, uh, the current war that we're in, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, we've actually lost about 6,000 American lives. Okay. And uh, in the Gulf War, from our childhood, just 258. Wow. I know. <laughs> kind of doesn't even feel like a war, does it? Well, I mean, for those 258 <laughs> people. And their loved ones. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so I had other things to talk to you about. Oh, I interrupted you and you and did. fucked up your whole system. And we took a whole system. thing. You made me jump from three to five, Jeff. I'm sorry. <laughs> you should just anticipate the order in which my mind will pop to different <laughs> So we were talking about where the Civil Wars fought. Uh, we said Virginia, Tennessee. Bloodiest battle. Definitely Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, top ten includes Vicksburg. Uh, what happened to the dead? That's where we are. Oh, okay. So um, They went into the ground? They did, pretty much right where they fell. Okay. So if you visit a Civil War battlefield... You walk in on... You'd be walking on the bodies. The bodies. Absolutely. Um, others, so where they, they were buried where they fell, others were buried near the hospitals where they died. Most battlefield dead were eventually exhumed and moved to the National or Confederate cemeteries. Mm. However, because there are so many bodies, the time and the effort that it took to disinter them... There are undoubtedly tens, if not tens of thousands, Civil War soldiers in unknown battlefield graves. Spooky. I and thought you'd like this that. This is where it gets to get me. <laughs> uh, so another common question is um, how many soldiers uh, at the Civil War? Uh, so the United States had a combined population of 22 million. Southern states... Oh, I'm sorry. When I said 22 million before, I was just talking about the North. Oh, okay. Forgive my... Forgive my error. I, I highlighted that. I'm sure there's down. some Civil War buffs sitting at home yelling at us. Right. So but again, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> the combined population of the North and Southern, North, Northern and Southern population was about 30 million. Okay. 22 million in the North, about 9 million uh, that, in the South. That tracks. Mm-hmm. Well, 9 million that they count? No, I think 9 million total. total. Okay. Yeah. So the there's a distinction. That, there's there's no way they would get that high if they weren't counting black people. Oh, okay. There's just no way. Were they counting three fifths of them? There's <laughs> no, a good they, chance of that. That's oh, let's talk about soldiers and their lives. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so how much do you think a soldier would have been paid in the Union Army? Uh, 
a pancake made of sawdust. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. <laughs> getting food to Johnny cakes. That's Johnny, what they're called. That's what they're called. Uh, getting food to both sides of the war was incredibly difficult, and by the end, almost all the soldiers were starving. And uh, speaking of how much you don't like my coffee, imagine it was all made of what chicory, which is like wood basically i don't know i don't know what it is but i feel really actually you've seen chicory a billion times in your life can i tell you what chicory is please do all right so you know when you're on the highway and you see those small blue flowers um that grow really close they grow in the gravel it's winter i don't know jen's like i can't even remember all plants are dead (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about there was the sun That's right. That's a Thumbelina reference. Oh, my God. Yes, it was. Don Bluth in the house. Mm. All right. Let me show you. You've seen this flower before. So they look like small flowers that you see on the side of the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So uh, these small blue flowers, they've got really distinct petals. Uh, They grow all over Michigan, and they're an invasive species. Guess who brought them? The Civil War people. (laughs) Before that. Oh. (laughs) Uh, The French fur traders. Oh, fuck them. I don't... Well, whatever. (laughs) Freaking invasive. It doesn't matter. Keep going. Oh my <laughs> what God. is chicory? <laughs> but like, what is it made? Like, what is the coffee made? Is it the root? The root. Okay. So, so you're eating, So when drinking... French fur traders brought chicory and yeah. they were utilizing chicory as a coffee substitute because they couldn't afford coffee, yeah. they would make their coffee on the banks of the river yeah. and then dump their ground out and, uh, oh, it, and then would it would take go. root and now it's all over Michigan. Yeah, all right. I think that's cool. It is cool, but it's an invasive species. And I guess it's maybe not doing, I don't know. Some of them, like Asian carp and zebra mussels, you can you say. You get mad about. Fuck them. Yeah, I guess. But, you know. Okay, we're so off track. <laughs> Who brought us off track, Jen? I'm sorry, chicory coffee. Okay. So how much did the soldiers get paid? Uh, the Union private made $13 a month. Mm-hmm. Unless he was black. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask me how much a black... Private made the movie Glory. Seven dollars. The respect of Matthew Broderick. Now, eventually, uh, Congress did go through and they they tried uh-huh. kind of uh, to rectify that discrepancy in 1864, and they did start paying which is black like people the same as white almost people. Almost the end of the war, but yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good catch. <sighs> uh, so African Americans actually did have a large part of the war. Yeah, uh, they in the South. Uh, they certainly, they were involved in the war effort in that they were slaves who were there on hand to serve generals. Yeah, um, and there was a lot of enslaved people who were conscripted into service. Yes. Uh, which, you know, is slavery. <laughs> yeah. To conscript someone into service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so when Lincoln put forth the Emancipation Act uh, proclamation in September of 1962. 1962. Yeah. African Americans, both free and runaway slaves, came forward to volunteer for the Union in substantial numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, approximately... The one Massachusetts 54th, I believe, is, is the one of them. Uh, most notable unit. Yes. Very good. Uh, approximately 180,000 African Americans... Uh, making up 63 units served in the U.S. Army, 18,000 in the Navy. Neat. That's cool, right? Yeah. So, uh, along with these new group, uh, groups of soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, they also had to institute the very first draft. <laughs> so the draft uh, in the Confederacy, so remember remember the Confederacy has about half the amount of people as the North has. Yeah. And they go out of people real fast. Yeah. <laughs> like, real fucking fast. Uh, by the end of the war, the boys who were playing the bugle 
mm. were as young as five and six. Mm. Because they're bugle boys who would normally be too young to hold a gun. Yeah, boogie 12. woogie bugle boys. Wrong war. But yeah. <laughs> uh, these bugle boys who traditionally would go into war, they, they were considered uh, mascots and they would yeah. play orders. Right. A way of like, uh, yeah, there is a purpose for them. Yeah, they're not just for fun. So these boys had muskets put in their hands oh, and they brought up ever younger boys. <sighs> So by the end of the war, a Civil War soldier for the Confederacy was usually middle school. Yikes! Freshman. Oh my like, god! Like 13, 14 years Do old. They have like three-year-old playing a bugle. Do they even know how to play a bugle? <clears throat> I have no historic evidence about that. Okay, but it doesn't seem impossible. Okay, but also I think it requires a great deal of, of diaphragm strength to play a bugle. Yeah. So yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Anyway, you big nerd. <sighs> you can't. I can't. You, we can't talk about the Civil War and me not like. Just go insane from just everything to talk about. There's so much. There's so much. So, uh, those are some basic facts. Mm -hmm. uh, we're painting a picture. One of the things that I want to talk about briefly is how slavery worked in the United States. Oh, yeah. Two things that are special. Were the Irish ever slaves? No. That is correct. <laughs> uh, anybody who ever tries to tell you, well, the Irish were like slaves in America... Refer them to me, they can get fucked. The Irish were not slaves. A slave in America had no holding. They literally did not have the entity or rights of a person. Mm -hmm. So if an Irish slave, which... Oh, I'm sorry, I can feel my blood pressure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give myself a fucking stroke. So about the Irish what, what existed in the United States was... Uh, racialized, servitude. well, indentured servitude for Irish, but for but then there was also a system of racialized chattel slavery, which yes. is the difference. Different. Anybody like indentured servitude is not the same. So an indentured servant would come to America, the the cost of their boat they would work off, uh, and it would take usually seven years. It's basically like loan payments. Exactly. Not that we're saying this is a. This is a good way to handle things. It's not. Oh, as someone who owes a lot of money. <laughs> right. It's not great. Right. It's super not great. Uh, but slaves were cash crops in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. So by the early 1800s, slavery was set to die out until mm -hmm. Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. Oh, I'm so glad you brought him up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Eli Whitney's cotton gin made cotton in the cotton growing in the South profitable. Mm -hmm. And that's really what led to the largest boom in in slavery. Um, mm -hmm. So at that point in time, though, uh, the United States in 1808 had actually banned the international slave trade. So we were no longer importing slaves from West Africa. And we should say enslaved people. That's actually a very good point. Yes, we should. Okay. We're no longer importing enslaved people from the West Indies and West Africa. Uh, instead, we are growing, so to speak, oh, breeding yeah. them here. Uh, and As you the, do with cows. Yes. It was a larger crop. It was a larger cash crop than actual agriculture in the South. Yeah. You made more money buying and selling trading human beings. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, they're humans. And I get mad about it every time. Oh, boy. It's, mm-hmm. And do you know who made sure that it continued? Who? Wealthy people. Yeah. And do you know who did all the speaking for the wealthy people? The church. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So wealthy people would fund these ministers 
uh, who worked basically like lobbyists in their town, and they would give this biblical defense mm, mm-hmm. of how the Bible supports slavery. Yeah. And guys, if this isn't ever a good fucking reason to leave that fucking church behind, this is it. All right? Well, there's, yeah, I mean... There's a very good book that I read uh, in grad school called Stamped from the Beginning um, by Ibram X. Kennedy, I think. And if you want to feel bad about the Northern involvement in slavery, you read that book because there's a whole section about Cotton Mather and the basically Cotton, the Thou shalt not suffer which to live Mather. Yeah, I think so. it's like him or yeah, it's either or one of his descendants or one of his no, or one of his like ancestors oh okay um it but it was basically right from the beginning in the 1600s there was a biblical need to defend the practice of enslaving humans and that is particularly when it got racialized because slavery has existed for millennia and it didn't always used to be racialized right um but then jewish people will tell you that there's been an element to it. Well, there has, but it's been like different right. people. And then actually, there's this whole thing. Okay, but essentially, uh, Puritans in New England had to justify the system. And so they they said, well, they're not Christian. And so uh-huh. that also meant that they didn't allow enslaved people to be Christian, which justified their subjugation of them. Yes. Now, a lot of um, people who also supported slavery mm-hmm. in the South and in the North yeah. uh, said, well, you know, uh, intellectually, black people are inferior. It's like raising children. Mm-hmm. They're they're forever children. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it weren't for us, they would be going to hell yeah. if we weren't forcing them. Yeah, because the eventually the South did get behind educating them in religion. We'll but talk about it was that. a very kind of limited sense right. it was only in religion yeah so and we'll talk more about that anyway um so eli whitney invents the cotton gin the cotton gin makes it possible to make a great deal of money off of cotton that can be grown in the southern united states but then also it would be milled in the northern united states yes. and turned into american cotton yeah so the north has a hand in this we profit from slavery as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so white Southerners uh, are growing more and more defensive because they need this money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to be able to buy, sell, trade, and breed slaves as well as have them work in their cotton fields. They argued that black people like children were incapable of caring for themselves and that slavery was a benevolent institution that kept them fed, clothed, occupied, and exposed to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Again, annoying. To their credit, most Northerners did not doubt that black people were inferior to war- whites, uh, but they did out the benevolence of slavery i think it was a freudian slip when i started to call them warts there Mm. so anti-slavery proponents organized the underground railroad to help slaves escape jen yes let's talk about the underground railroad for just a second okay what can you tell me about the underground railroad uh it was a series of safe houses on the way to canada Yep, series of safe houses on the way to Canada. Thank you for saying Canada and not just the North. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Uh, well, I know because there were underground ground railroad houses in my hometown. Yes. Which is very close to the Canadian border. Absolutely. Now, up until 1850, uh-huh. all they had to do was make it across the Ohio-Kentucky border. Mm. Uh, once they make it across the Ohio-Kentucky border, they were in the North and they were free. However... Uh, after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, which we're going to come, we're going to talk about in detail, uh, then they had to go all the way to Canada, and yeah. so it stretched farther. Um, 
when you are talking about these safe houses, who owns the safe house? Who's, whose risk does the Underground Railroad belong to? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different so <laughs> let me let me take the onus off of you first okay i was like i want to say white people but i feel like that's the wrong answer it is the wrong answer okay. but it's very much the narrative that is predominant in our society yeah the underground railroad was not primarily run or started or maintained by white people mm-hmm. really uh very few white people were involved and the ones who were uh were usually involved in a financial way uh, the only ones who were involved in more physical ways were almost all from one church. Do you know what church? The Quakers. The Quakers. God bless the Quakers. God bless the Quakers. Uh, today they're called the Society of Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a church in Grand Rapids. I like them on Facebook. We are friends. Oh, cute. <laughs> uh, if I ever remember two seconds ago when I was shitting on the church. Yeah. <laughs> guys, if you like Jesus and social justice, what you like is Quakerism. Check it out. Mm. So the Underground Railroad was started by black people. It was run by black people. And the idea that it's mostly a benevolent white institution is racism at work. So the Underground Railroad was a series of houses and it was a form of resistance against the institution of slavery. So yeah, slaves uh, held no land. They held no, because they were property, just like your toaster can't sue you uh, in 1857. It was ruled in the United States Supreme Court that black people uh, could also not sue. Mm -hmm. um, Because, again, your dog couldn't sue you. It doesn't have the ability. So Mm. Um, (laughs) this is all leading to the trigger events of the Civil War, which I promise I will skate over as fast as possible. (laughs) Uh, So uh, that peculiar institution. Remember, Jen, when I asked you, I said two things to say. uh, And the first one was that the Irish were never slaves. Uh I would now like to talk to you about the Dutch. Okay. <laughs> who, Jen, who do you think brought the first slaves to America? The Dutch. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, in in my in my long list of reasons to hate the Dutch, <laughs> especially the Dutch in America, there's two kinds of people I hate in this world: people who are intolerant of other people's cultures, and, and the, the Dutch. <laughs> I had no idea how relevant that sentence from Austin Powers and Goldmember <laughs> would be to my life. <laughs> As I married into a family where they're all Dutch. Oh my God, they're also Dutch. Mm -hmm. And I live in a community of very, very, very racist Dutch people. And uh, all of the conservatives around me are Dutch, 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 Dutch. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And uh, even even my good friend Jen betrays me by being Dutch. It's not my fault. I know. (laughs) I love you people regardless. (laughs) So, uh, slavery brought here by the Dutch. Mm. In 1619, uh, and it continues on through 1865. In 1831, one of the most um, effective, one of the largest slave rebellions, 1831, organized by Nat Turner in Southern Virginia. Uh, Turner and 70 cohorts uh, killed around 60 white people. Good Uh, for them, I guess. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Very Lucille Bluth. Good for him. (laughs) And and I believe that of the sex trade, too. Yeah. Uh, anybody who is held in slavery, if they rise up and kill their captor, I say good for them. Yeah. You'll also notice as we continue to talk that I don't get real broken up about slaveholders dying. dying. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the militia was deployed. Uh, infantry and artillery suppressed the rebellion after two days. Uh, they call it two days of terror. I don't give a fuck. Who's terror? Yeah. So, yeah. fuck them. So, 55 of those slaves including Turner, were tried, 
tried. I'm sure it was Scare quotes, scare quotes, scare quotes. Right. Uh, They were executed. But then... Yes. But then, but then, but then... Yeah. Over 200 more slaves were lynched by horrified and and frenzied mobs. So... A practice that continues... Yep. Continues... Onward. Onward. Almost to this day. I'm not going to get away from the word almost. So, uh, Virginia lawmakers then went the extra step of rolling back the protections and rights that black slaves had been given. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they prohibited education and the right to assemble. Yep. So cool. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, The Wilmot Proviso starts bringing us into territory expansion. Uh, These are the growth years following the uh, 1803 Louisiana Purchase. The Missouri Compromise is the thing I skipped. I jumped Mm. right to Nat Turner. Should have started with the Missouri Compromise. Um, Well, we alluded to parts of this before. Certainly. So the Missouri Compromise is also known as the Great Compromise of 1850. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a different 1850. Thing? Yes, we'll talk about that. I don't know. <laughs> sorry. So the Missouri Compromise is a stop policy. quizzing me. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So it's the policy that would guide the expansion of slavery into the new Western territory. Gotcha. So uh, Missouri applied. To I learned st- all this, by the way. It's right. Just of course been, you did. Like, 15 years. This is literally what every fourth grader spends, fourth and fifth grade spend two years of education on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they established policy for the expansion of slavery into the new Western territory. Missouri applied for statehood as a slave state and it started a huge national debate. That was in 1820. Ultimately, they reached a series of agreements that, begun, that become known as the Missouri Compromise. Missouri was admitted as a slave state. Maine was as a free state. Right. By bringing them in at the same time, you keep the balance they, of power. In Congress, exactly. They also drive a line uh, through the Western Incorporated Territories along the 3630 parallel, dividing the North and the South. So along with that, a uh, couple years later, 1850 comes the Compromise of 1850. Oh, yeah. So the Compromise... John C. Calhoun. Very good. And creepy-looking motherfucker. <laughs> uh, so Stephen Douglas and Henry Clay... Uh, they broker a lot of this with... John C. Calhoun. Very good. Uh, the Compromise admitted California in as a free state, but did not regulate slavery in the remainder of the Mexican session, uh, while strengthening the Fugitive Slave Act law. The Fugitive Slave Act law made it against the law for Northerners to help a slave escape. Mm-hmm. It also meant that you could be collected by U.S. Marshals. Spoiler alert, there are no police in America until it's time to round up slaves. Mm-hmm. So there's your thin blue line for you right there. Mm-hmm. Also explains why a lot of white people would have been reluctant to join in on the Underground Railroad. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because people be rule followers. So uh, they now, the Fugitive Slave Act, those people have to turn in slaves as mm-hmm. stolen property if they find them. Um, and, and by making people who are kind of against slavery, not really for it, be forced to participate, what they're actually doing is heightening uh, this polarization. Uh, in 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, <laughs> which shows the benevolent uh, story is bunk, shows the horrors of slavery and really excited the North. Mm-hmm. And now comes Kansas. Kansas and Nebraska... Uh, 1854, 
their territories uh, that are under the first uh, to be able to vote once you get there if you're going to be a slave state or a free state. So loads of people come into the state uh, states in order to uh, swing power one way or another. In the fall of 1850, my boy, abolitionist John Brown. Mm, I figured. Of course I love him. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> I don't really care if you murder slaveholders. I said it. Yeah. Okay. Not my problem. Uh, and you know what? That is actually something for me to say because my family held slaves. Mm. So, like, I'm just going to claim that, yeah, mm-hmm. this is personal for me, too. Mm-hmm. I'm, my family was from Missouri back then. Mm. We were part of that slaveholding South. Mm-hmm. There are people in my life who I have met as an adult and as a child who are African-Americans with the last name Reed. And the reason they have the same last name as me is because my family... Oh, I don't care. Okay. It's on there. (laughs) Is a thousand percent because my family used to own their family. Okay. Yeah, because I was like, you know... So when I say I'm okay with people killing Mm slaveholders, I'm throwing my own family under the right fucking bus. And I don't know my family history like that but i was dutch so we but least... you guys were the dutch who came later weren't you yeah but my ancestors would have definitely benefited from the dutch side of that trade that's true you right <laughs> we so... didn't probably directly own people but if you're in the merchant class you're there you benefiting go. from it well and they had the first stock market so yeah you very well could have made money off of that yeah. sale so, my boy, John Brown, mm-hmm. uh, goes to Kansas, and uh, there is a sacking of Lawrence by border ruffians from Missouri, who they want to tear apart an abolitionist printing press. Well, John Brown's not having that. So, he and his sons go and kill five pro-slavery settlers. I don't feel bad about it, and mm-hmm. I don't feel bad about supporting it. Uh, you know, he uh, eventually skedaddles. This is the massacre at Pottawatomi Creek. Um, but it launches a guerrilla war between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces that eventually had to be put down. John Brown escapes from that. And where does he end up? In 1859? Harper's Ferry. Harper's Ferry. That's right. Uh, God, I feel like I'm in eighth grade again. (laughs) You're doing great. Thank you. Uh, So, again, he supported that violent action at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. West Virginia now is just Virginia then. He and 19 of his supporters led a raid on the Federal Army and Arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, West Virginia now, um, in an effort to capture and confiscate the arms located there and distribute them amongst local slaves and begin an insurrection. They do not win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unfortunately, they are all tried and put to death uh, for treason against the state of Virginia, uh, and they are hung, hanged, and I hate that term, uh, December 2nd of that year. R.I.P. John Brown. Uh, skipping stuff because we have to go faster. Mm-hmm. We're getting real in the weeds right now. I know. I'm sorry. But these, this stuff all matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Lincoln. I think we know enough about Lincoln. Do we? Does anyone? <laughs> Does anyone? Ever? At, in 1860, a quarter of all Northerners lived in urban areas. Uh, the battle between rural and urban that is still <laughs> raging. Raging in America today. <laughs> You know, look at everything. If you were, if you ask anybody from a rural area how they feel about people who live in L.A., it will not be positive. And also, if you ask someone who's spent their whole life in Boston if they've ever met a Republican, yeah. <laughs> a yeah. lot of times they have not. They have not. Coastal elites are a thing. <laughs> it's very true. So I've met some of them. Talking, well, even the term coastal elites, that's such a Midwest thing to say. Yeah. Uh, so... 
the the culture battles of city versus country yeah. are still reflected here. Um, I actually don't find I find coastal elites to be better people than the people I hang out with. Uh, some of them, but then there are definitely like what really gets my blood boiling is like when they are just like referring to this area's flyover territory. And I mean, more for us. There are so many like think pieces about New York City art critics coming here for Art Prize and how they were how shocked they were to find any culture at all in oh. this area of the country. And it's insufferable. Like I, they, I think there's a difference between people who are educated mm-hmm. and people who are snobs. Yeah. So like snobbery I don't think think is charming. Yeah. Uh, but when you vilify education mm-hmm. as elitism, I get pissed about that. Oh, same. I I I I see both sides of it. Um, is what I, I I'm not against education by any means. I'm a very educated you person. You're the most but, educated person in this room. But I I get real salty about either side judging the other too harshly because I've seen I've met several people both on the coast and in the middle of the country. I suppose I'm the harsher of us. Yeah. Uh, I I really get down on people who live a small life, and it's personal for me. I I was like right there with you until I I did spend more time on the East Coast, and I met a lot of people who were pretty ignorant about the middle of the country, and sure. that's when like that will get your Midwest pride flowing. Okay, like I'm just saying, like I, I think, think I think even you would start fighting for the Midwest. <laughs> I, and I don't have a problem. I love the Midwest. Exactly. I, other than like winter, I'm staying here. Yeah, you know, like I love the Midwest. The people here are very kind. like talk about people not believing that there are any airports in Ohio. Cool. <laughs> like the capital city of Ohio being like, oh, I'm surprised you could find an airport. That's the kind of ignorance I'm talking about. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, we can keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> clearly most of my life was spent amongst people who believe that if you have any sort of degree higher than a high school degree, mm-hmm. uh, you're a highfalutin city girl. Yeah. And uh, I cannot tell you how many times I've come up against that idea. Yeah. And... Yeah. So, okay. Perspective. Perspective. (laughs) So, uh, again, my point to the 1860s is that the fights that we're fighting today are the same fights they were fighting then, which is so stupid and aggravating that we have not moved forward. So the South uh, was agricultural. The North was industrial. Uh, A quarter of Northerners lived in the city. Slavery had died out, replaced in the cities by factories uh, and factories by immigrant labor from Europe. Uh, In fact, An overwhelming of immigrants, seven out of every eight, settled in the north rather than the south. Mm. Uh, We also had more transportation. There was more uh, ability to get between places. Uh, Two-thirds of all railroad tracks uh, were in the United States north. Which is a huge factor in the Civil War. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) More northerners than southerners uh, were Whig Republicans. Okay. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, God, the political systems. Just I know we've touched on this before, dear listener. Yeah. But just for what it's worth. Up until we'll split the we'll split the difference and say the nineteen forties. Yeah, it's really it really becomes apparent in the sixties. Yes, but up until the nineteen forties, if you said Republican, you meant the goodies. <laughs> yeah, that is no longer the case. Well, like, okay, yeah, it's like the the political parties have essentially switched platforms. Yes, so so when, party of Lincoln, my fucking ass. That's right. <laughs> When a conservative says to you that they're the party of Lincoln, you can casually tell them to get fucked. Because they would have hated Lincoln. They would have hated Lincoln. 
Uh, Lincoln, don't get me started. <laughs> so you guys know, you know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, the South uh, was less educated, less mobile, uh, and they had almost as many blacks as whites, which was a huge threat to them. Mm. So in fact, uh, f- slaves and free, there were 4 million black people and 5.5 million whites. That's not a huge difference. No, it's not. And of those, you know, one group does more with their bodies and is more physically adept Mm -hmm. and knows how to use a lot of tools. Yeah. The whites had every right to be afraid of their slaves. Yeah. They were almost outnumbered and... uh, Especially in specific, like, areas, they would would have been hugely outnumbered. uh Uh-huh. Now, there's nothing to fear from people you're not keeping as possessions. Yeah. You know, but, you know that's a that's a thing they didn't want to consider. <laughs> now, as we're heading into this war, two thirds of Southerners do not hold any slaves at all. Mm-hmm. Why would they fight for this? Because America runs on pitting the lower classes against each other. Fucking right, they do. This war was a war, just like every other fucking war, fought to benefit the wealthy. <laughs> yeah, uh, the ability to keep slaves had nothing to do. With your average poor white person. Mm -hmm. And they still fought tooth and nail over it uh, and died in the dirt. if you're at the bottom of the totem pole in one category, you don't want to be the bottom of the totem pole in all categories. You want to fight for your right to be second worst. (laughs) Right. Unless you're John Brown, (laughs) who's willing to just fucking fight. Some people can see beyond that. All right, so... Let's talk about ghosts. Please. Let's take a break and talk about some motherfucking ghosts. An hour into our paranormal podcast. It's not really going to be an hour, though. We've got a lot to cut in there. Ah. So. Yes. Let's go back to New Orleans for a minute. Please. Right. Uh, I'm going to take you to the French Quarter. Uh Uh-huh. 1113. So 1113. Okay. This is an address. I was like. Yes. yes. It's an address. (laughs) parse it in my head. One, 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 three. One, 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 and three. Rue Chatrain. I don't speak French. Uh, This is the tenant home of the general who was responsible for the firing of Fort Sumter. Now, Fort Sumter was a fort, a Union fort. On an island. On an island, which is cool. Yeah. In Charleston Bay. Yeah. Uh, And that's Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Sometimes you have to just say it fast. Right. <laughs> uh, so it, it's uh, it's in the Bay, Charleston Bay, South Carolina. And as I said, South Carolina was the first uh-huh. to secede. Yeah. And when they, they seceded... They were real angry down there. Ooh, uh, when they seceded, all of a sudden these Union soldiers found themselves in enemy territory. Yeah, not great. Not great. So Lincoln uh, sends them supplies. Mm-hmm. And those supplies are withheld, and then they use artillery for 34 hours. Fucking day and a half, firing Mm. repeatedly on Fort Sumter. At at first, it was celebratory. It was that, uh, oh, hey, we just Oh, okay, so it's just a, yeehaw, shoot my gun off in the air kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it was. A lot of yeehaw energy. Um, and, uh, so they, civilians were into it, yeah. you know, they were like, yeah, this is celebratory. This and is then as do. any drunk celebration happens, it got worse. It gets violent. Uh, it was, um, eventually they, they had to surrender and the fort was reduced to rubble. 
Shit. Yeah. So this is not... Shots fired, as (laughs) you might say. And those shots were fired... Uh, by, <laughs> <Those shots were. laughs> by civil war and boy <laughs> were they uh, so the general responsible was Beauregard Keys oh, and, Beauregard uh, right, that's very much he was so famous during the civil war that's why we associate the word Beauregard with being a very so, like you almost hear it in Foghorn Leggings on board yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> Beauregard like you have to say it like that and it's because of the civil war Yeah, the inheritance of the civil war yeah um, so it's going to be a lot of bad Southern accents in this episode. <laughs> uh, so Beauregard eventually, uh, following the war, spends the rest of his time in his home in the French Quarter. Uh, now the home was he was renting. He it. fired all those shots. He's like, mm, I'm going to go home. He's like, mm, I, I, no, he, he goes on and does a couple of things. Oh, but, okay, and then he goes uh, home. Then he goes home after the war. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the the home is actually not his, but it's called the Beauregard Keys House. Okay. Um, it was he was just a tenant of the house, uh, but he and his sons had taken it, and the Civil War continues to haunt it today. Now the house has literally, literally, and figuratively, I all of the things. Okay. Uh, so. So often, uh, as people are inside the house, they see Civil War soldiers. Ooh. They materialize in their gray... The spookiest of Victorian apparitions. Yes, I agree. Uh, well, they're... no, that's not your children. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Jen, someday, someday you're going to let me finish the sentence. I just know it. Never. <laughs> <laughs> um. So they come in. They, and they seem shocked. Mm. They're looking around and they seem shocked and, and just silent. Okay. And then they disappear. Do you think they're shocked because they're like, what's that blue box over there? It, I think that's an interesting question. Okay. If, if they are, are, if they're intelligent, are they shocked because they're looking around and they're like, holy shit, what's going on What here? the fuck are iPhones? Right. Uh, their only reports come from after World War II. Oh. So it's Whoa. possible. Um, but the house has seen a lot. Okay. The house has gone through a lot. I'm specifically going to talk to you about things that are Civil War adjacent. Yes. But, like, that house was the location of the New Orleans mob for a while. <gasps> Fun. Yeah. It's definitely very okay. cool. I should check it out. I don't want to tell all their stories, though, because okay. there's a lot. Okay. Um, they also, though, will occasionally have sounds of battle. Throughout the house. On quiet nights, you might hear screaming or gunshots. <gasps> it can even become smells. Uh, Gunpowder, blood, or decay. Which are, that's a lot of energy to, Ooh, to materialize yeah. a smell. Um, if you see the soldiers now, instead of being shocked and silent, uh, they maintain their silence, but they have are just covered in injuries. Missing limbs, ah. gaping chest wounds, faces blown away. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But they're still silent. So, I wish house, I could. I wish an opera could see my face. Right? I know it's pretty great. Uh, Shock, excitement. <laughs> there's a lot to see in this house, uh, but it still very much holds a great part of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Even though no battle was fought there, wasn't there a siege? I was gonna say, didn't they send yeah, the Union I mean, take all, New Orleans? It was, it was certainly, um, New Orleans was, quote-unquote, sieged. Uh, they had to cut off southern plantation owners from selling their cotton abroad. Yeah. Because then they could major, make money. It was a major port. Right. Uh, the major port. Really the only major city in the south at that point in time. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of, like, in-city battle. 
Right. Yeah, it was more like they blockaded it and exactly. then they took the city. Exactly. Uh, so that that first battle, Fort Sumter, uh-huh. uh we're gonna we're gonna block off with one of the final battles of the war. Skipping ahead. Skipping ahead. <laughs> Approximately <laughs> five Aprils. <laughs> Uh, this is the Battle of Kolb's Farm in Marietta, Georgia. Mm. This Battle of Kolb's Farm uh, was fought June 22, 1864. Um, so the Union forces were organized by Major General Joseph Hooker, which is always a fun name. Yeah. Support your local hooker, guys. Yeah. The Confederates uh, were led by just a real winner, uh, John B. Hood. John Hood was known for real aggressive tactics. Oh. Like, imagine a general who is so anxious to fight the army that as soon as he sees the army, he's going to go fight them. (laughs) I know several people like that. And uh, he doesn't really stop to think and and look at the land or figure out how many soldiers there are. A great. Yeah. uh, Real popular leader. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, he just goes off half, half, um, half cocked hooker. Who's the, he's the goody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) Uh, Everyone was thinking. So Hooker and his uh, people knew that General Hood was looking at them mm-hmm. and that he was mobilizing his troops to meet them. Mm-hmm. So Hooker went ahead and just kind of um, stashed a third of his army away mm. and made it impossible for Hood to get accurate counts about how many people were there. Ah, yeah. fun. So rather than like take his time and figure out if this battle is worth his time or attention, uh, Hood just goes storming into battle. I love Battlefield hijinks. Indeed. Uh, he did not take into account a marshy area oh. that made it impossible to move his group forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had he had this battle planned out on two fronts. Yeah. And one front was completely taken out by artillery because oh they got stuck in the marsh. Oh, boy. Yeah. The other side was uh, they, they did they did a battle, but they were outnumbered two to one because a third battalion had been in the woods behind them. So, uh, it's what comes when you attack without without adequate recon. Yikes. Uh, and he actually goes on. He doesn't lose his generalship. He goes on to make the same mistake in another <laughs> battle near the end of the war. Well, the Union had some idiotic generals, too. They so. certainly did. That's, yep. <laughs> Equal uh, opportunity. Idiocy. The Confederates suffered um, 1,500 dead men. Union lost 350 total. Jesus. Yeah. Most people just call it a fucking slaughter. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you yeah. get stuck in the mud and they just fire at you all day at their leisure. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> uh, when they went into battle, they were outnumbered, but he didn't know it. Hood only had 14,000 men, whereas Hooker had 15,000. Oh, that's 1,000 more. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of people to be more. Yeah. Uh, so this whole area now is a really proper little cute subdivision, and they do have um, a home that had been standing there. It really looks like more of a, I guess it's just like a simple log cabin with a sort of dog trot feature. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all it's all in place with the uh, Battlefield Trust. You can drive through a nice little park. Yeah. And occasionally as you drive through that park, Civil War soldiers will come out of the woods and shock the shit out of you, as uh-huh. many people have reported. Yeah. There's a local family that lives at the end of the edge of this battlefield. Their family name is the Tatums. Channing? If only. <laughs> so the Tatums have a Civil War ghost who has, it seems like he has intellect and he's aware of where he is. So interesting. So he's moved into their house. What? And takes up the guest room. And he likes to play pranks on people within the house. Tatums, are you okay? 
They, like, this is, what have you done? They say he's mostly a friendly spirit. Uh-huh. Mostly. That's yes. how you get murdered. And this information comes from uh, five haunted Civil War battlefields from HuffPo, of all places. <laughs> oh, HuffPo. Oh, HuffPo. Uh, so... The information is there, uh, but the Tatums say that he lives in their guest room and he plays pranks, tugging on hair and mm. hands and uh, moving objects. Okay. Yeah. So Tatums, that's on you. That, you invited that that's, in. And you let it stay. You let it stay. You gave him a home. That's weird. I almost said the ghost of Tatum, but then it felt it's like Channing lot. Tatum, and I don't want that. I don't oh. want that universe. Oh. Uh, so these Civil War ghosts are you know, either caught in time and they're reliving the same moment again or again, mm-hmm. or they are aware that they're gone and that they have an impact on the present. Which is really interesting. You don't usually hear about that. It's true, right? Mm-hmm. You mostly just hear about these people who are sort of trapped in time, this soul mm-hmm. kind of like doing the same thing it had done again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very common aspect of something we talk about. But yeah. these are the two locations. Um, if you're going to go to the French Quarter... I promise you the Beauregard Keys house is not the only fucking thing that is haunted. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we have a whole episode. A whole episode. (laughs) Uh, But the battlefield of Culp's Farm in Marietta, Georgia, there's a lot to see there. And people say that there's a lot of great energy. Yeah. I'm glad you ended in Georgia. Oh, good. Is that what you're picking up? That is where our story picks up. Perfect. I'm going to skip over all the work because you covered it so nicely. Um, I will just say that. Georgia, you know, it was the fifth state to secede from the Union. So mm-hmm. it's right up there with with the other southern states. Um, so, yeah, they were very much a part of the Confederacy. They they contributed or they, yeah, they contributed about 100,000 soldiers to the Confederate cause. Uh, 27 different battles were fought in Georgia, mainly uh, between, nine, or, hmm, I was it again, uh, <laughs> between 1864 and 1865. And this is during General Sherman's March to the Sea. Yay! Well, also not yet. <laughs> yeah. But talk about like a great, man, there's some great stories in there. Yeah, the, so this is, uh, if you do talk to Southern people about the Civil War, this is just to say that General Sherman did some shit. <laughs> there are lines that occasionally get crossed. Yeah. So this was very much a case of, I think, a lot of, you know, feelings of righteous war for very good and obvious reasons. And then kind of towards the end of the war. It becoming penalized. It becoming crossing some lines of like what we're going to do to punish these people who What's we want to eventually bring back into the fold. Right. So oops. General Sherman was kind of fucking sick of war and wanted it to end and he kind of went on a rampage as he marched his army to the sea. Now, to his credit. Yeah. Uh without such decisive action it's possible this war could have dragged on that's a lot of the arguments uh that we have about bombing hiroshima okay but (laughs) i hear what you're saying (laughs) i do not think it's fair to say that the ugliness of a nuclear attack Mm -hmm. two nuclear attacks yeah i don't want to forget Nagasaki. nagasaki yeah is the same as what sherman did to the south okay was it cruel for cruelty's sake? It wasn't. Probably. It wasn't as bad as nuclear bombs. Yes. That's, but that's, he did give his soldiers 
free reign to get a little Viking. Literally rape and pillage yes. the South. And yep. they burned they literally burned cities down. Uh-huh. And which fun fact. Well, okay, it's not a fun fact, but uh, <laughs> now all of our government buildings are made out of stone. Yeah. It was a lesson that they learned from Sherman. Yeah. Because they lost so many records. Yeah. So this is just to say that Sherman has a very uh, divisive legacy, uh, depending on where you're from. We have a lot of, we have a Tecumseh, Michigan. Yes. Uh, named after him. Uh, the, so the North is generally very kind of pro-Sherman. I'm very pro-Sherman. And the South is very anti-Sherman, even if they are willing to recognize that the South Confederacy was wrong and slavery was wrong, they're still very against Sherman because what he did was uh, he crossed the line into attacking civilians. And I'm not going to pass judgment on that either way because I think people will draw their own conclusions. Yeah. I'm just going to say that he basically burned down the South. Yep. (laughs) But he didn't burn down Savannah. Oh. Yep, Savannah, Georgia. He uh, took the city and decided not to burn it down, but to present it to President Lincoln as a Christmas present in 1864. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Lincoln. So, yeah, that's what I'll say about Sherman. I think you obviously have your opinion. I honestly, I don't know where I stand on Sherman. I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. Anyway, so Savannah, Georgia uh, survived the Civil War. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, I guess. So I'm talking specifically about one location in Savannah. Uh, and this came in in a tip from our listener, Kristen H. Oh, hey. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, you kind of inspired this episode. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm talking about the Marshall House in Savannah. Perfect. During the railroad boom in the 1840s and 50s, mm-hmm. the population of Savannah doubled. How many? I don't know. Oh, okay, good fine. I don't care. <laughs> so essentially, um, there was a need to accommodate a growing population. We've discussed this before in other locations. Railroads mean people, yes. and business, and travelers. Um, so Mary Marshall, who was one of the elite in Savannah society, she owned several properties in her own right. This was very interesting to me because historically women in the 1800s didn't own property. So I had to ask myself why. So she doesn't really factor much into the story, but I just needed to answer this question. She is the only child of affluent parents. They were plantation owners, so, but her father was also a cabinet maker um, and he bought up several parcels of land in Savannah. They were also part Jewish, which is interesting. Huh. I don't, yeah, whatever. So he dies, I think like five or so years after she's born and he leaves all of his land and property and money to his wife and daughter. So obviously her mother dies at some point. Uh, she marries a Colonel James Marshall in 1800 and she becomes, you know, a very well-known rich white lady in Savannah society. Uh, they don't have any children of their own, but she does adopt a daughter and she's very well known for her charitable works. Her husband though dies in 1845 Mysterious circumstances? I don't know. I don't think that's her type. I wasn't sure if she was like murdering him people along the way. I don't think way. so. I mean, I don't think she murdered her father when she was five. You never know. There's <laughs> one way to get a fortune, I guess. Anyway, so she, in 1845, is the sole... She owns all of that property that she inherited from her father, and then her husband dies. And so 
she doesn't have to like give all of that to him. She owns it all. Okay. And she owns several plots of land. Um, so she decides to um, start building up, you know, things on this property. So one of those um, things that she builds is the Marshall House. And she, uh, it's built and it opens for business in 1851 as a hotel. Okay. And she, you know, owns it, but it's not like her sole thing. So this is where she kind of like steps out of the picture. Bows out of the story. Um, she's the, she, she doesn't even work there. She's, she's the landowner. Okay. So she has it, she owns the land and she built the hotel, but she doesn't manage it. Cool. Because she has other things going on. Right. She's a rich white lady. Yeah. So there, but there is an 1830s era portrait of Mary Hung in the reception area of the hotel. So she's there to welcome you in. Wait, is it still standing today? Oh, it's still standing today. Dope. And it's still a hotel. It is like one of the few, like, this is very rare where it's a building that was built as a hotel and it was functioned as a hotel basically almost continuously until today. There was a period. to stay there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) there might be some rooms you want to avoid but nope (laughs) (laughs) okay so it is located in broughton street in the heart of savannah it is in the greek revival style but there was a later cast iron facade that was added uh, making it look like it belongs in the french quarter really tying this whole episode together very tidy it was a hotel uh and then sherman as i alluded to before arrives in savannah in 1864 and so they occupy the city for about a year. And during this time, they use the Marshall House as a hospital. Okay. Because uh, it's a hotel, so a lot of beds. Uh, makes sense. During this time, there's also a yellow fever epidemic. Yeah. So, I mean, anytime you're using anything as a hotel, it's not going to be great. Right. Or as, as a hospital, as a I mean. So, yeah, a lot of people died there, <laughs> as you uh, might guess. Right. Yellow fever is not a joke. Mm-hmm. I didn't really go too much into detail. Suffice to say... A lot of people died in that place uh, during the occupation. A little later during Reconstruction, uh, the Marshall House is home to one Joel Chandler Harris, who is the author of the Uncle Remus stories, Oh, which is the basis for the... Character of Jim Crow, right? That, no, Song no, of the South. Song of the South. Yes. Um, if you're interested in the Disney movie that Disney would rather forget, uh, there's a whole series on, you must remember this, about uh-huh. Song of the South. Yeah. And also, if you look like a couple pages back on YouTube, it's there. Oh, yeah, you can definitely find a lot of clips. I Is the whole movie on there? I, the last time I checked, it was. You mm-hmm. can find bootlegs of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Anyway, so uh, in the hotel was closed in 1957. The, the second through fourth floors were abandoned, but there were shops remaining on the ground floor until 1998. So I guess it wasn't like completely continuously a hotel, okay. but it wasn't anything else during sure. that time. And then the shops were there until 1998 until it was cl- completely closed and there was an extensive renovation in 1999 after which it opened once again as a modern functioning hotel. Fantastic. That you can stay in. That we were staying. Yes. So efforts were taken to preserve the historic elements of the hotel, which I love. I love me some good historic preservation. It's true. Uh, <laughs> so, I which, knew that would get y'all hot and bothered. God, I love a good historic hotel and building, and I think it's a really creative way to have character and to have uh, a unique story to your establishment. So I am very pro reusing old buildings. I love you so much. I took a whole class on, on historic preservation, and I'm ready to advocate for it. Uh, <laughs> so, But they, they did save a lot of the, the original historic elements, including including, uh, you know, the brick walls. There's a 
there's Philadelphia pressed brick on the facade and Savannah gray brick throughout. <laughs> I think it's funny that they used Philadelphia brick on the outside because <laughs> they knew it was fancier. Um, they have original staircases, original wood floors, fireplaces. Some of the fireplaces are like in the hallway, which is how you can tell that it's an old building. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, the doors to the guest rooms are also original. And then they also have several clawfoot tubs dating to 1880, and they have also reproduced a lot of historical elements that no longer survive, like gas lamps or, well, probably electric lamps by now, but, sure. you know, to make it look more authentic. original and authentic. Um, so during the renovation, uh, workers were kind of excavating parts of it, and a lot of the things that they have uncovered are on display on the second and third floor, like little bit bits and bobs that they found however um, there's one thing that isn't on display and that is what they uncovered in the basement is it a dead body it is uh <laughs> so uh, w- when they were working in the basement they found a wooden floor that had rotted and needed to be replaced what was underneath the floor they tore up the floor boards and found human remains oh namely hands feet arms and legs how many nearly three dozen that's so many! Yeah, because during the Union occupation and when it was a hospital, that room was the surgery. Gross! Yes. <laughs> Gross. So. Gross. That is, uh, they talked about how they found them in like specific bundles that they assumed would have been like that day's batch of amputated limbs. So instead of throwing them out or burning them or something, they just popped open the floorboards, and stuffed them under. Can you imagine how bad that room would have smelled? Oh, my God. So bad. So bad. There's just, like, weeks worth of, like, piles of rotting. In a room with no Like, gangrenous. Like, not just, like, a regular, you know, severed limb, but, like, already rotting. I can't. <gasps> There's no way. In the basement. Oh. It just so would have smelled bad. like blood and decay. Oh, so bad. Yeah. And mold, probably. Yeah. And just infection and disgustingness. So, yeah, that was a choice that they made. Um, That room is now the manager's office. (laughs) What are jobs I don't want for 800, Alex? (laughs) So, so not surprisingly, uh, managers of the hotel have complained of strange noises coming from or around that office, including low moans and unexplained footsteps. Yep. Because the feet are trying to walk out because it smells so bad. Yeah. And also, uh, a lot of, yeah, like the, the disembodied, like, cries of pain. Of course. And fever and infection. You know, that is something we actually haven't talked about yet, is mm-hmm. Civil War doctor-ness. Yeah, okay. Civil War med- Jesus, yeah. doctor-ness. Civil War doctor-ness uh, <laughs> included, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We didn't. I I came across it in my research, but I, knowing about it already, was like, nobody needs to know that. But in case you are curious, anesthesia did not exist at the time. So this is where the phrase, what, bite the bullet comes from. They would give patients a a hit of whiskey to kind of numb the senses. And then they would give them a lead bullet to put between their teeth to bite down on so that they wouldn't bite their tongue off. Um, and then they would just go to town, sawing off limbs, which is where you get the nickname for doctors, or specifically surgeons, sawbones. Yep. Uh, fun fact, the tools that they used at that point in time, while they did have metal blades, had mm-hmm. wooden handles. Yeah. Precious little holds on to germs. 
Like wood. Like wood does. And also, they didn't know to wash their hands. Right. So they would just go from gangrenous body part, grip it, rip it off, to the next person who didn't have gangrene. Do you have the data on how many people died of disease and infection? Versus I don't, but I can get it bullets. right now. Because uh, it's sure, a lot. Yeah. I've read it before. So this is from Civil War Medicine uh, mm-hmm. from E-History. The deadliest thing that faced Civil War soldier was disease. Was disease. For every soldier who died in battle, two died of disease. Okay. Why do I feel like we covered that once? I feel like we have. Maybe when we talked about New Orleans the first time. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, um, yeah, so more soldiers died of disease than being shot on the battlefield. Yeah, by a lot. And a lot of that happened here. So... One manager saw a shadowy figure pass when he was supposed to be alone in the hotel. He described the figure as wearing a blue overcoat and appearing to be missing an arm. That same figure has been seen several times since. I love it. Uh, After they uncovered all these limbs from underneath the floorboards, it said that that's when the, the strange noises started. Of course. Almost as if... The lost souls there are searching for their lost limbs that oh. have been removed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's no way they would ever be able to be like, oh, this is the arm of Timothy J. Smith. Yeah. I mean. You know, like you, they're just going to. They're just, I assume, in a mass grave by now. Right. Because what else can you do? Right. So it's not just soldiers in this hotel. Tell me more. You remember when I said something about children? Oh. <laughs> Guests and staff have both reported hearing a small child bouncing a ball up and down the upper hallways. There wasn't any story about who this child might be. Uh, I assume just someone in the long history of the hotel. Guests ask about disembodied sounds of child's footsteps in the hall or hearing a child laughing. How do you know it's a child's footstep? I guess like, I don't know, the small purpose. I guess... What you what could be a clue is the cadence yeah. of footsteps. Adults like adults have a stronger stride. Walk a certain regular way and children are very like gambit. Can you imagine hearing the little shuffling pitter patter like running children? I mean yes, but I would just be like, shut up. Yeah. Anyway. Uh one guest described seeing a soldier with a small boy who told the visitor to quote, get out of my room. She did. <laughs> uh, as anyone would. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> See, and that's a moment of intelligence. Yeah. Now, that's is interesting. He temporally displaced, for sure. He doesn't mm-hmm. know that he's in the future now. But they know that room. someone is in his room. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I got chills, and not just because it's getting colder in here. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> others have reported feeling caressed while they sleep. Gross. Yes. It does. But what's interesting in this case is most people describe it as a hand being pressed to their forehead. Like checking for disease. Checking for yellow fever. (laughs) There's been reports of a well-dressed gentleman reading a book by a specific window. Also a lady dressed in white floating through the hallways. I think if any place is haunted enough to have like a few ghost stories, there's you have to have a lady always a woman in white. You gotta. Which I think I've covered before is sometimes seen as an omen and not just a regular person. Yes. It could be. I don't remember what that omen means, but. <laughs> oh, I think it's usually like a spurned woman. Uh, so there was uh, once uh, a doctor and his wife staying at a hotel who mentioned at checkout that he had been woken up in the night by a gentle tickling sensation on his feet. 
He at first assumed it was just something with the comforter or sheets, which is almost more uncomfortable, I think, than a ghost. Because then it's like bed bugs. That makes him want to sleep with socks on. Yeah. Uh, but he, he eventually, it kept going. So he woke up and he looked to the foot of his bed to see a little girl tickling his feet. She smiled and vanished. Fuck that. Fuck that. No thank you. <laughs> no thank you. Indeed. <laughs> and, and the staff had reported um, smelling odors. Like decay? They didn't say what odors, but I assume it it has to be decay. Like, nobody's going to be like, oh, it smells like Chanel number five in here. I better report that to somebody. Some people do. There's been, like, there's some hauntings that it's like you smell their perfume. That's true, I guess. Like, at Hyde Hall, you smell either roses or uh, pipe tobacco. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So, fence. But I feel like in this place, it's got to be decay. Because there can't have been a lot of good smells happening in that place. Imagine having a hotel or, like, a shop. It's on the first floor, right? Mm-hmm. The manager's office or the basement? I think it's in the basement. They said a lower floor. Regardless, like, uh. there's just body parts buried in the floor. Uh. And everybody was just kind of okay with that. It happens. You deal with it. And then it was just lost to time until they investigated right. it. I just, I guess I kind of want to meet the, like, surgeon boy who was like, yeah, we'll just throw it on the floor. It's fine. Yeah, like, you couldn't just fucking take it outside? Right. <laughs> I don't Maybe you don't want the dogs getting to it. Oh, possibly. And I guess this is also, it's a time where they believe in miasmas, like uh, foul air, you know, bad odors causing disease. Right. But I feel like you don't, all the more reason to take it out and burn it, right? Like you wouldn't want that. It's incredibly hard to produce a heat hot enough to burn a human flesh. That's true. That's true. So if you don't have the capability of getting a furnace that hot, then don't even try. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, staff have reported odors and bad vibes from specifically rooms 214 and 314. Do you think if we call today, we can book those rooms? Oh, yeah, you can stay in them. Nice. I assume there's probably a waiting list of people who are, I would say, uh, passionate (laughs) about the paranormal, like us. Um, So, yeah, we, we might have to fight with some of them. Anyway, the staff have tried various means of getting rid of these, uh, quote, odors and bad vibes. They've used deodorizers and ozone machines. They didn't work. Finally, they tried group prayer, and that worked. Yeah, that makes sense. Energy. A floor up in room 414. Mm Mm-hmm. There was an aura and an odor so oppressive that the staff members could not stay in the room long enough to pray. Wow. So. That's a they, bad sign. That's a bad, bad sign. So they tried uh, various things. Um, eventually, a housekeeping manager uh, found a solution by putting a radio tuned to the gospel station uh, in the room with the volume turned up. And that seemed to work. I should say that my sources uh, are <laughs> marshallhouse.com has a whole section on the history. There was someone who wrote a biography of Mary Marshall for a, a History 500 class. Nice. <laughs> and, and then also uh, an article called Haunted Happenings at the Marshall House, uh, Beckon, and then uh, by Michelle De Silvia Richmond, and that's from USA Today, Ted and Best, blah, blah, blah. And then there's Savannah Walking Tours at www.ghostsavannah.com. So yeah. And then, oh, my final source (laughs) comes to us from Reddit. Nice. I have been praying for such an occasion to happen since we started this podcast. I've been casually trolling through the subreddits for a good, like, personal story about any of the topics that we cover. I usually will type in, like, topic, comma, Reddit. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) To see if anything pops up. And this time, 
It did. And I'm treating this like I didn't get permission. They posted this two years ago on a public forum. I'm going to credit them. This comes from user Ghost Gawker. And it's posted on the subreddit Paranormal. Um, And so, and they call it Encounters at Marshall House Hotel Savannah. So if you want to find it, head over to that subreddit. Thank you to that person. I'm just going to read it with credit. I didn't write this. Okay. So she writes, uh, Savannah, Georgia is my favorite American city. After my first ghost tour there with my husband, Pete, I knew on our next trip, we had to stay at the Marshall House Hotel, the most haunted hotel in Savannah. It has an interesting past, including serving as a hospital during the Civil War. On our next trip, we stayed there and we were on the fourth top floor. Do you remember the room number? 414. Mm -hmm. Just stay tuned. Uh, It was early November and we weren't and there weren't many people staying at the hotel. I was awakened on the first night by pressure on my forehead. As if someone was taking your temperature. And I thought it felt like three fingers. Then I realized someone was feeling my forehead, like checking for a fever. I looked over at the clock, which is always the first thing I do when something, quote, goes bump in the night. Just to make sure I'm not dreaming, it was 1.05. I put the covers over my head and went back to sleep. That same night, I woke up three times to what I thought was Pete thrashing his legs around and shaking the bed like he had restless leg syndrome or something. He doesn't and has never moved his legs around at night. I didn't turn over and look at him, but I said, what are you doing? And he muttered something about the horses, (laughs) which is kind of funny. (laughs) Um, I thought, whatever, he's dreaming and went back to sleep. It happened twice more, getting more violent every time with the thrashing motions, seemingly causing the headboard to bang rhythmically against the wall. Wow. The third time was really crazy, like he was running in his sleep, like a dog dreaming, and the bed was shaking and flopping, and each time I asked what's going on, and each time got an answer about the horses. This is getting more concerning. Now. I wonder if it was in Pete's voice, or if somebody else said the Ooh. horses. I, yeah, they didn't specify. Um, well, he had no memory in the morning of being awakened, or dreams about horses, or me asking him anything, and the headboard is bolted firmly to the wall. Oh. I couldn't get it to move to make that banging noise, so I can only conclude it was being knocked on. <sighs> and what was moving the bed if it wasn't him? I wish I would have not pansied out and looked over there. I mean, she, that night. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The next night, we were walking down the long hallway to our room after dinner and noticed someone at the end of the hall had a camera in their hand and was sticking it out their door trying to record something. When they saw us coming, they darted back into their room. So this is how you know everyone on that floor is experiencing something. Right. Um, later, we were watching TV around 11, 11.30, and we heard kids running down the hall and laughing. It was loud. We heard it over the TV and the loud air conditioner about three times. My first reaction was annoyance because it was late for loudly running down the hotel hall. I looked at the peephole. No kids. (laughs) (laughs) Running and giggling again five minutes later uh, or so. Looked out again. Again, no kids. Pete almost called the front desk to complain that kids were running around, but he didn't want to be, quote, that guy. Right. Uh, He looked at the peephole and saw the room across from us open and shut his door real quick. We thought the kids must be in there, but a few minutes later, I peeped and saw a young couple come out of that room. So it means that they They were also here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The morning after I asked the front desk if there were any children checked in last night, the clerk said there hadn't been any in weeks. (laughs) I assume they said it in an old prospective voice. Naturally. There haven't been any children in this hotel in weeks. (laughs) The clerk said there, uh, yeah. Then she said, are you on the fourth floor? I said, yes. She said, oh, yeah, you heard kids all right. Happens all the time. (laughs) Casual. She said that, 
quote, Casper, the little kid ghost, likes to play with people in room 417, our room. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Which she didn't know at the time, either. Uh, she and the bellman laughed and shook their heads in a knowing way. Pete is a total skeptic, by the way, but he couldn't deny hearing those kids running and laughing in the hallway. Delightful. I want to go. Delightful. So apparently the whole fourth floor is haunted. I think we should stay there. I concur. Okay. Wow. And that's the Marshall House. So thank you to Kristen for uh, suggesting that. My darlings, this is too long. We're going to skip a a listener episode. Yeah. Uh, We will be coming back to you soon. Mm-hmm. Two weeks, a fortnight even. A fortnight, you might say. Uh, but we're going to let this go. Uh, thank you for listening about the Civil War. We have a couple new patrons to thank. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Sid. Thank you. Sarah Sid, thank you. Yeah, and Rachel Riddle. So thank you both for being a patron. Are you giving that face like you're trying to remember if you know this person? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Rachel Riddle, your name sounds really familiar. There's probably a reason I know that. Forgive us. Thank um, you. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, you guys rock. Thank um, you. And if you want to check out our Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash this podcast is haunted. And if you would rather just hang out with us in the free zone, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at various things, haunted underscore pod on Twitter, and this podcast is haunted on other things. Catherine? Just sums up. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, we should stop having a podcast now. We should show, or, or, sorry, what I mean is we should end this episode. What? (laughs) This is awkward. Um, so what I mean is, good episode, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and, uh, stay spooky, motherfuckers. Stay spooky, indeed.